Good morning, everyone. Peter began us on the path of prayer so beautifully. Let's continue in posture of prayer before our Lord. Lord, we praise you and we thank you that you have revealed in your word to us the path of righteousness. It is right and it is good and it is more full of blessing than anything that we could come up with. And so I pray, Lord, that you would show us that path, show us your priorities this morning as we look into your word, um, and cause us to embrace those priorities, ultimately to embrace the person of Jesus Christ. And Father, may we leave this place later today as doers of your will. So give us listening ears now, and I pray for your help uh, this morning as I am under the weather that you would give grace and uh, sustain uh, me during this time of preaching your word. Lord, be glorified in this, in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When the, the people had been enslaved in Egypt under Pharaoh, they'd been living an existence of what Walter Brueggemann calls feverish productivity. That is, under Pharaoh, the people worked their fingers to the bone. They worked day and night under a tyrant, with little to no work stoppages or respite or rest. Pharaoh's system had been a system of anxious industry, of oppressive production. And so when their new master, Yahweh, came along at Sinai and spoke to them the fourth word of the ten words, it must have come, I think, it must have come as a startling shock. Their new master, their God, was telling them that from now on things would be very different than they had been under Pharaoh. They were commanded now to set aside as holy one day in seven for rest, for worship. With the Sabbath commandment, God was showing the people that he was no Pharaoh. He was no workaholic, slave-driving master. Things under Yahweh would be very different than they had been under Pharaoh. Well, the Exodus version of the fourth word is found in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the verses that were just read to us. And the fourth word can be considered the transitional word of the ten words. We've pointed out already in this sermon series that the first three words of the ten words have to do with human obligation to God, while the latter words of the ten words have to do with human obligation to Neighbor. Well, this fourth word, the Sabbath word, ties together both aspects. The words of the fourth commandment tie together human obligation to God and human obligation to neighbor. And so it can be considered as the transitional commandment of the Ten Commandments. And I also think that there's a particular connection 
between this fourth Sabbath word and the first three words. Work and productivity and consumption can quickly verge into idolatrous territory. Thinking of the second commandment. People can begin to seek fulfillment and seek personal significance from work instead of God. Thinking of the first and second commandment. And people can become obsessed with making a name for themselves through work so that the hallowing of God's name becomes less important. Third commandment. And so God commands Sabbath. In the fourth word, he commands this consecrated work stoppage. We want to venture slowly through the fourth word and observe a few things about it. What we notice, first of all, now this is from a sort of bird's eye view of the whole passage. What we notice is that the fourth word is the longest of the ten words. It's longer even than the second word. That is a significant thing. Also, the fourth word is one of only two words of the ten words that are framed positively. In other words, where eight out of the ten words are framed negatively as prohibitions, you shall not, only this fourth word and the fifth word are framed positively. This is more about what we must do and not as much about what we must not do. As David Baker says, the positive framing of the fourth word might suggest an emphasis, he says, on celebration rather than abstinence, on joy rather than duty. God begins in verse 8 by saying, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Now the basic meaning of that word Sabbath is stop or cease. And this wasn't the first time that the people had heard about the Sabbath. Four chapters earlier in Exodus 16, verses 23 to 26, Moses had already talked to them about Sabbath observance. Here in Exodus 20, God's call is to remember the Sabbath and to keep it holy. To remember in this ancient culture, was not simply to bring to mind in a cognitive sort of a way. To remember was also to act. It's kind of like if I say to a married man, remember your upcoming anniversary. Well, it does no good for that man to simply bring the anniversary to mind and leave things there, he must act. He must go out and buy flowers and possibly make a dinner if he wants to remain in the good books of his wife. Remembering in this ancient culture meant action. And here in this verse, the specific action was to keep the Sabbath holy. That is... The people were to treat the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, 
as out of the ordinary compared to the other six days. They were to set aside this day as distinct, as marked out for divine service. Verse 9, God continues. Six days, notice this, six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, what we note in verse 9 is how God actually affirms and validates work. Notice that. He affirms that six days out of seven are given over to work. God himself is a worker. The word work, in fact, is used three times in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, to describe what God did when he created the world. He worked. And work is also a privilege that God first gave to Adam in the garden. Genesis 2.15 So work, in God's economy, work is a good thing. Yes, it has been affected by the fall of mankind, but work originally is a good thing. And here in Exodus 20, verse 9, God affirms work. Let's go to verse 10. Note this. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male servant, or your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates. Again, I think these words probably would have been arresting or shocking to the people who first heard them. They had just been under a system of slavery where work had been forced on them, whether they felt like working or not. And now their new master, who had freed them, he just recently freed them so mightily from that tyranny, now he was giving them this new and very different policy. Now what we notice here in verse 10 are a couple of things. First of all, note carefully the direction or the focus of the Sabbath day. The Sabbath is to Yahweh your God. That is... The Sabbath belonged to Yahweh. The direction of the Sabbath was a Godward direction. That's the first thing. And then secondly, notice what I would call here the humanitarian aspect of the Sabbath. This, this I think, is coming straight from the heart of God here. As an Israelite... You yourself were commanded in the Sabbath commandment to stop work and to rest, but also you were to promote a whole system of stoppage and rest amongst your neighbors, amongst those who were closest to you, your son and your daughter, your male and female servants, the sojourners among you, and even your animals were not to work on the seventh day. So that the Sabbath, we need to understand, had this aspect of social empathy about it. It wasn't just about you. It was also about looking after your neighbor, caring for your neighbor, whether your neighbor is human or animal. Sabbath was about rejecting Pharaoh's oppressive and cruel work system and living into God's work system where neighbor was valued, 
neighbor was loved, and neighbor was cared for. Well, in verse 11, we get what I would call now the rationale or the reason why Israel was to obey and keep the Sabbath. Listen to verse 11. For in six days, Yahweh made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, Yahweh blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. The reason why Israel was to rest on the Sabbath is because God rested on the seventh day after six days of created work, creative work. Israel was to imitate the pattern that God had modeled in the week of creation. Six days of work followed by Sabbath. The work week of the Israelite was to reflect the original work week of God. They were image bearers of God and they were to reflect God in this way. And of course, here in verse 11, we have, don't we, a clear echo of Genesis 2, verses 2 and 3. Those Genesis verses read as follows. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, in that Genesis text, it says that God blessed, notice. He blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And in our Exodus text, in Exodus 20, verse 11, it says also that God blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What does it mean that God blessed this day? Was God's blessing... Just a sort of pleasant verbal wish over the day or or a sort of positive word spoken over the day. And that was that. Or should we see God's blessing the Sabbath as a much more significant thing? I like what what, uh, Mark Rooker says here about God blessing the Sabbath. He says this. Listen to this. Quote, the bestowal of blessing results in vitality, prosperity, abundance, or fertility. God's blessing causes the heavens to give rain, the subterranean water to sustain arable land, the womb and breasts to give birth and suckle, and the people to eat in the presence of the Lord and rejoice in everything they It is a direct act of God, he says, that causes what is blessed to perform and produce at the optimum level and to fulfill its purpose. Close quote. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The Jewish writer Abraham Heschel once drew attention to a most significant fact here, which is that the first object to be made holy by God in all creation was not a majestic mountain, nor was it a religious altar, 
but rather the first thing to be made holy in the creation was time. It was a day. It was the Sabbath day. It's a very significant thing in Scripture. The Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, what's quite interesting for us to consider briefly is that the reason for Sabbath keeping here in the Exodus version of the fourth word is different than the reason given in the Deuteronomy 5 version of the fourth word. Again, here in Exodus 20, the reason that Israel is to keep the Sabbath is because God himself rested on the seventh day of the creation week. However... Over in Deuteronomy 5, what we have is something a little different. In the Deuteronomy version, God commands the Sabbath, and the reason he gives there for keeping the Sabbath is in Deuteronomy 5.15. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. So in Deuteronomy, it's redemption out of Egypt that is to motivate the people to keep Sabbath, whereas in Exodus, it is imitating God in the creation week. But we might say that the theme of creation binds the two versions together. The Exodus version discusses the creation of the world, while the Deuteronomy version discusses the creation of a people called Israel by their redemption out of Egypt. So maybe with creation binding them together, they're not that far apart after all. Well, as we look through the wider Old Testament, we find that Sabbath is taken entirely seriously. First of all, we should point out that in Exodus 31... The Sabbath is called a sign, a sign of the covenant with Moses, just as circumcision was the sign of the covenant with Abraham. And the Sabbath commandment gets repeated over and over and over again throughout the Torah, and the repetition emphasizes its importance. And Sabbath also gets repeated several times in the Prophets. It's very important. And the penalty for breaking Sabbath was very serious. According to Exodus 31.14, the penalty for Sabbath breaking under the Old Covenant was death. The Old Testament literature is also very clear on what constituted a breaking of the Sabbath. Things like gathering food, Gathering firewood on the Sabbath were prohibited, as were activities of plowing and harvesting. You also had to refrain from lighting a fire on the Sabbath, and you were not permitted to market your commercial goods and commodities on the Sabbath. And there was also a prohibition against carrying a load, carrying a burden on the Sabbath. However, And this is very important. Not every sort of exertion was prohibited on the Sabbath. For example, you could still water and feed your animals on the Sabbath. 
You could still prepare food on the Sabbath. You could still milk your cattle. And priests could still work in the sanctuary. Doug Stewart is helpful here in his commentary on Exodus. He tells us that there were certain everyday activities that were necessary in this ancient agricultural context. And it was okay to perform them on the Sabbath. Stewart writes, What was prohibited, however, and this is important, what was prohibited was duplicating on the Sabbath any of the usual labors of the other six days that could possibly be stopped without actually causing someone or something harm. He says, people and animals would still need to be fed. Lactating animals would still need to be milked. Priests would still work within the sanctuary. But to the extent possible, all workers were to receive a day of rest. Well, by the time the first century rolled around, by the time when Jesus was born into the world, the understanding of Sabbath law had become perilously, perilously distorted. As Mark Rooker has it, by the time of Jesus, the intent of the Sabbath had been distorted, and the Sabbath had become a burden rather than a time for worship and celebration. Albert Moeller gives us two shining examples, I think, of just how crazy things had become by the time of Jesus, where the question of Sabbath was concerned. I want to read you Moeller's description of a debate, an actual debate that rabbis were having about Sabbath by the time of Jesus Christ. Moeller writes this. If an egg is found under a hen on the Sabbath morning, May it be eaten? It's a technical question. When, after all, was the labor performed? The hen is not available for interrogation. If the egg was the product of labor on the Sabbath, it is not to be eaten. If, however, the labor was done on some other day and it just appears on the Sabbath, then it is a gift. The question was, which egg can you scramble and which must you destroy? So that's the first example of how wacky things had become on the question of Sabbath as Jesus was entering the world. The second example that Moeller gives is this. He writes, what if on the Sabbath the elderly woman of the family, the matriarch, should fall in the field and needed to be brought back to the house. Could you take a stretcher to her in order to bring her out of the field? The rabbis debated this back and forth, some saying yes and some saying no. Some said no because it was too dangerous. For in taking the wooden stakes the poles that would be part of the stretcher, they might drop and dig a furrow in the ground. And one would have then plowed and thus desecrated the Sabbath. 
Was it better to leave granny in the field than to desecrate the Sabbath by plowing? (laughs) Jesus came on the scene. And Jesus made the staggering claim that he was Lord of the Sabbath. So we need to grasp this, friends. Where all things Sabbath are concerned, all things Sabbath, Jesus is the divine authority. And Jesus also said, did he not, that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets, which means that Jesus himself fulfills the Sabbath, since the Sabbath is part of the law. Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17 tell us that the Old Testament Sabbath is a shadow of, But the substance belongs to Christ. In the New Testament, we need to understand, the Sabbath undergoes a radical change from what it was in the Old Testament. We need to grasp that. The the Sabbath is now centered on the person of Jesus Christ. Listen. When Jesus was raised from the dead, By the power of Almighty God, Jesus entered into God's eternal Sabbath rest. And if we are identified with the risen Jesus, are you identified with the risen Jesus this morning? If we are identified with the risen Jesus, if we know Him as Lord and Savior, we share right now an initial share of His Sabbath rest. This is why Jesus can say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That's a Sabbath word. If we are identified with Jesus, we enter into our initial share of the eternal Sabbath rest that he enjoys as our risen king. This is the already part of our Sabbath rest. But there is also a not yet part of our Sabbath rest. Hebrews 4.9 tells us that there remains a... Sabbatismos in Greek. A Sabbath rest for the people of God. There is a share of our Sabbath rest that is not yet. It will come to us and it will be ours in full measure when as believers our bodies are resurrected from death to life. On that glorious day in the new creation, we will be physically forever with God. Refreshed forever in His rest. We will find ourselves in a quality of unending rest that we do not now fully enjoy. This will be a rest, says Edmund Clowney. 
in which perfect love will cast out all our fears. A resting place prepared ahead of us by our older brother, who will wipe away every tear. At a resting place where there will be no more sin or suffering or pain or separation or loneliness. As the song says, friends, we can only imagine. Amen? But for the now, in the meantime, there are still questions we have about Sabbath. And as we work toward a close this morning, I want to make just a brief attempt at addressing one of those questions. The question is, in terms of observing Sabbath, how much carryover is there from the Old Testament Sabbath command to the New Testament time in which we live? Well, I believe, I'm going to go on record here, and you may disagree with me, you are free to disagree with me if you want to, but I believe that since Jesus fulfills the Sabbath, and since Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, and since Jesus has clearly transformed the Sabbath, that as New Covenant Christians, we are no longer required to keep the Old Testament Sabbath. I just don't find a New Testament passage that commands Sabbath-keeping per se. But now having said that, as Bruce Waltke has put it, it is in our hearts as Christians to set apart a day, sanctifying it for worship and reflection. Waltke says, a person who feels inclined to work seven days a week should examine which God he or she worships. And so, we gather for worship and rest on Sunday. More on that in just a few moments. But do I believe that there are Sabbath principles that we would be wise to hear and to heed? Well, for sure I do. For example, Sabbath teaches us that production and workaholism must not become the defining marks of our humanity. God does not want us to become work machines or to act like work machines. Furthermore, Sabbath humbles us by showing us that the world does not depend on our constant striving and effort and work. We can rest and the world will continue just fine without us because who sustains the world? God does. <laughs> and not us. Furthermore, Sabbath draws us away from what Eugene Peterson calls our godlike pretensions. Ouch. The pretensions that we have that we can manipulate and we can control our whole lives. Sabbath calls us instead to turn our gaze to God and be conscious of God and be attentive to God and renew our dependence on Him. All of these things, I think, are valuable lessons and principles that the Sabbath command teaches us. But with the New Testament open, 
I don't see that we are required to keep Sabbath in the Old Testament sense of keeping Sabbath. Now, on the subject of the specific day of worship and or rest for Christians, whether that day is to be considered a Sabbath or something else, I want to preface my remarks by saying that I am very aware that this is somewhat of a contentious issue for some people. I'm aware that in our congregation there are people who hold differing views on this matter. So with humility and with respect, I give you my two cents here on the subject of the day, whether the day is to be considered a Sabbath or not. And again, you are free to disagree with me, but I hope that if you want to express your disagreement with me, that you will be full of grace and long-suffering <laughs> toward a weaker brother. I'm serious. And that you will be scriptural and not emotional <laughs> in your, in your counter-arguments. All right, that's my preface. There are three basic positions when it comes to the subject of the day of worship, the day of rest, whether the day is to be considered a Sabbath. So the first position is one taken by people in the Seventh-day Adventist church called Seventh-day Sabbatarianism. This position argues that there is a carryover from Old Testament times to New Testament times that because the Sabbath fell on the seventh day in the Old Testament, which by, by our calendar is Saturday, that the church should gather on Saturday instead of Sunday for Sabbath worship. And I'm just giving very brief explanations of these positions. The second basic position that some Protestants take is what has been called Lord's Day Sabbatarianism. This is the position that because in the New Testament we see the church gathering on the first day of the week instead of on the seventh, that today we are to gather on the first day of the week, on Sunday for worship. But this second position says also that there has been a transfer of the Old Covenant seventh day Sabbath to the New Covenant first day. So in this position, Sabbath continues just on the first day of the week instead of the seventh. The third position, and the one that I admittedly subscribe to, along with John Calvin, Martin Luther, and the majority, I would add, of evangelical Christians around the world, is what is called Lord's Day Observance. In this position... Sunday is the day on which we are to gather for worship because that's what the early church does in the New Testament. For example, they gather on the first day of the week to break bread, Acts 20, verse 7. They also take up an offering on the first day, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. However, in this third position, Sunday is not to be considered a Christian Sabbath. Sunday does not replace the Sabbath. Rather, Sunday supersedes the Sabbath. Sunday is something other than Sabbath. 
In the New Testament, it's a new thing under the new covenant called the Lord's Day. And we are commanded to gather on this day to remember our exodus from sin, death, and Satan that has been accomplished by Jesus in his cross and resurrection. We are not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together on the Lord's day. What we see in the New Testament is that it was on the first day of the week, the day after the Sabbath day, when Jesus was raised from the dead. Matthew 28, 1, Mark 16, 2, Luke 24, 1, John 20, verse 1. And the resurrection of Jesus on the first day reorganizes our calendar so that the first day of the week, or what has sometimes been called the eighth day, since the resurrection signals an altogether new creation, the first day or eighth day was called the Lord's Day by the earliest Christians. We gather for worship on the Lord's Day, the first day, on Sunday, because that's when the resurrection took place. The resurrection of Jesus, who fulfills Sabbath and calls us into his resurrection rest. And this is a rest that we already enjoy seven days a week, but it's a rest that we will not enjoy in all its fullness until eternity. As O. Palmer Robertson has it, we begin our week, we begin our week rejoicing in the rest already accomplished by the cosmic event of Christ's resurrection. Then we enter joyfully into our six days of labor, confident of success through the victory which Christ has already won. I leave the last word here to Al Mohler, who says this. Israel was called to obey the fourth commandment to observe the Sabbath. The church is called to find rest in Christ. That's so important, to find rest in Christ and to give ourselves to worship on the day that marks his resurrection from the dead. We cannot obey the fourth commandment if we do not understand the transformation of the Sabbath as it is fulfilled in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, above all, we hear in the fourth commandment your heart. We hear that we were not created to be beasts of burden. We hear that there is value in rest. And we hear in the fourth commandment the voice of Jesus Christ who tells us to come to him to find our rest. Lord, thank you for the whole canon of Scripture, all 66 books, which give us the complete picture of what Sabbath is and what rest is. Lord God, as we go from this place today, I pray that you would give us rest in our hearts and minds through the risen Jesus Christ. And Lord God, that you would cause our week this week to be a week full of joy and rejoicing, rejoicing in the resurrection and in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen.
And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.